Travel Magazine would like to thank its sponsors, Ararat Gallery Tama, the Bendigo Living Art Space, and Wangaratta Art Gallery. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Okay, we're back in the studios of Main FM. And I'm with Dr. Mark Halloran. How you going, Mark? Good, thanks, Steve. How are you? Yeah, very good. Listeners will know that we're in the middle of repeating the first series of Deep Trouble that went to air last year. But we're interrupting the repeat series to bring you a taster, a preview of the forthcoming second series. In this episode, I'm speaking to Charles Firth from The Chaser. We originally conducted the first interview with Charles prior to the election this year. Then we decided to follow up to really cover the aftermath of the election because Charles made some specific predictions about what would occur in the election. What about we just isolate one of his predictions and play it for the listeners right now? Listeners should be aware that there is a language warning. I do want to talk about the upcoming election, and I imagine you're excited about the election uh, 2019. Obviously going to be a really close race. If there's anyone who can fuck up an election like John Hewson did, it's Bill Shorten. Labor's only been elected three times since World War II. And on each of those occasions, it was off the back of a proper monumental social movement style moment. Like 2007, it was your rights at work. And Rudd was swept in off the back of talking about workers' rights that the Mm. union movement did that was sort of tangential to what Rudd represented in a way. Hawke was off the back of the Franklin Dam. Like, that whole movement was quite a big movement that got them there. And then same with Whitlam. Like, that was off the back of the anti-Vietnam social movement. Shorten doesn't have that. I don't think Australians, they don't go, oh, well, we'll just vote for this Labor Party and change governments. Labor actually has to give a proper reason for them to be voted in. Otherwise, they just sort of go for the default. Oh, my dad voted for Liberals, so I'll vote for Liberals. What do you think of that, Mark? Well, it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what you expected? No, well, I suppose I had been influenced, I would say fooled by uh, the polling conducted by Newspoll up to that point. And in the subsequent interview that I do with Charles, we talk about what are some of the issues. The 2019 election felt very much to me like the sorts of upsets that we saw with Trump and Brexit. Right. Gee, that's interesting because... As explained in this interview, you yourself raised a question in the post-wrap whether the polls were ever accurate. And that's a really interesting issue to explore because it changes everything. If the polls were never accurate, then it means lots of things. It means, for instance, that Turnbull got shafted for no reason. Mm. We're looking at the turnover of Prime Ministers based on erroneous polls. The issue with the polling is, uh, which we only saw discussed after the election, I guess because hindsight has 2020 vision, 
is that these polls are conducted uh, with very small sample sizes now. There's an incredibly high attrition rate, basically because the way that they're conducted is through robocalls. They're still using the white pages to, f- to actually select people, select their samples. Mm. So I guess governments going into the future this Liberal government, if they are falling behind in something like news poll, they can almost quite rightly say, who cares? What is fabulous is that uh, you did the interview before the election, so he made his predictions, and then you were able to flesh out what actually did happen in the uh, post-election interview. One of the things that I was interested in was this idea that you can run an election and not care what happens in two states, cut them adrift, That's what Charles says. Let's not worry about Queensland. Let's not worry about Western Australia because Labor will pick up enough seats in the southern states. Do you really think that's an option? He talks about that in relation to, I think, uh, what happened with Bob Hawke when they formed an alliance with Bob Brown and the Greens in Tasmania with the issue, which was the, the damming of the Franklin River. I say in the interview they lost all of Tasmania because mm. of that, but they, uh, they gained Tasmania back in the subsequent election but certainly they were carried by all of the other states. I'm not as convinced by this. I mean, the same sort of rhetoric that lost, potentially lost some Queensland also influenced them in Western Australia. So there was a turn against the Labor state government, which had been previously quite strong. And I also think in terms of what Bob Brown and the Adani movement were trying to do, I think they'd talked about it wasn't about convincing Queenslanders or convincing people working with the coal industry or the agricultural industry to stand against this mine. They were trying to influence the rest of Australia. But you would have to say that they failed in regards to that. Right. So without any further ado, let's hear the interview. Hello, Charles. Oh, hi, Mark. How are you going? Good. So you went to the University of Sydney, uh, where you studied an arts degree in political science. What drew you towards politics? Well, I think it had always been in my family, to be honest. My great-grandfather was the Red Bishop, Bishop Bergman, who helped stop the banning of the Communist Party back in the 1950s. So Menzies wanted to ban the Communist Party, and my great-grandfather was this you know, very respectable but somewhat radical Red Bishop who stood up to Menzies and sort of got involved in that referendum in 51 that sort of stopped it. So that's always been folklore in my family. Right. I think I was probably just living up to that. And the satire side of things, what draws you towards satire? I mean, you're best known for your work in The Chaser. Yeah. And C-N-N-N-N. How did that develop? Look, I've sort of been like that, I think, since I was in primary school. I remember writing school magazines and little newsletters and things like that back in year five and year six. Me and my friends would write up stories that were funny and then photocopy them and distribute them. It wasn't really even a newsletter. They were just stories that we found funny when we were sort of 10 or 11. So maybe it's because I didn't have many friends and found it a way to amuse people. I, I don't know. <laughs> a way of um, socialising with people. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Isn't that what comedy is? It's for people who are deeply damaged in some other way. <laughs> so they compensate by sort of relieving the tension by cracking gags all the time. Yeah, well, I, I suppose there is some sort of relationship between a black sense of humour and emotional intelligence, which is perhaps the inverse of what you'd think. 
I went to your Wikipedia page because I'd learnt from Greg Hunt that was a good way of investigating things. And I made the mistake that I thought that you'd broken through some sort of glass ceiling, but in fact, in 1997, you broke through a plate glass window at a university senate meeting. Yeah, that's right. And actually, it was, Craig was standing right next to me, but he never got arrested. So, yeah, we were protesting... It sounds sort of very quaint to say it now, but Sydney University were going to introduce upfront fees, which were not a part of the education system back then. So we had HEX, but it was a very small amount. It was like $300 per semester or whatever. And and so we were protesting the idea that you could be charged upfront for your university courses. And it was sort of a bit of a mistake. Like there was this pivotal Senate meeting on and we were trying to get into it from the main quad and Craig and I were both sort of trying to force the window open and it just broke in our hands and and then we sort of looked at each other and I went through and I was such a coward the moment I went through that there was all these university senators looking very shocked that I joined them and and then this huge security, actually, I think it was a policeman, came up and put me in the most painful arm lock. So instead of sort of bravely going, oh, you know, full fees should be abolished, <laughs> I just went, oh, go peacefully. Oh, God. <laughs> so it was not my finest moment of bravery. That wasn't in any way yes. satirical at all. We did hold a lot of satirical protests. At university, yes, uh, but that wasn't one of them. We even held one once called the Fashionable Day of Action, which actually got a bigger attendance. Like we sort of arranged it to be at the exact time as another protest, and we got more people along to the Fashionable Day of Action than the actual legitimate protest that was on. <laughs> we were very proud of that. I guess, in some respects, those elements are within the chaser, aren't they? So, is that kind of where it began? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, we all went to university together and we all did things at various different times, but a lot of us did the arts review and the student newspaper and we were all friends. And so it became a natural progression. When we took over the student newspaper back in 95, it was a very serious, very, very, very boring and very arty newspaper and we turned it into a sort of trashy satirical newspaper not unlike you know the original chaser newspaper and we went wild like it was it actually became popular because it was finally funny and also irreverent like i think it's that dual element of both being funny as well as being a bit yeah on the edge and willing to push boundaries is it hard to do satire on the 45th Parliament where it feels as though it sort of parodies itself? No, no. <laughs> In actual fact, it's really a blessing because our job is we're basically, all we have to do is transcribe what's happening. The number one comment that we always get on any article that goes viral on Facebook or whatever is... Dear Chaser, when will you get back into writing satire? This is just the truth. And I think we as a society are not served well by the absurdity and the sclerotic nature of politics in 2019. But we as a satirical organisation are very, very well served by it. You know, including the rise of Trump, the rise of Brexit, all the sort of populist movements, they're so deeply, deeply moronic that 
Of course it's good for a comedian. It feels like it's more difficult to escalate, though, to some extent, because you've got to trump what's already going on. It is certainly true that the satire can outrun you. Like, the real events can outrun you. So you think of an absurd twist, and then a week later, (laughs) it turns out to be true. But that's just part of the fun, I think. And I genuinely think it sharpens your skills, because you've actually got to work harder to think of something that's even more absurd than reality, and more surprising. Are there things that you can't joke about anymore? I think definitely. But I think there's always been things you can't joke about. You know, it used to be, oh, you can't joke about the king's bad hair because Mm. the king would chop off your head. Now we've got to things like you can't joke about, you know, various forms of mental illness or whatever because actually it's really slack and you shouldn't punch Mm. down. And I think that's always been the case. It's just Mm. we're actually recalibrating in a way that it has far more humanity. I wondered about this. So I'd read the quarterly and, and there's a, a piece in it, a, a satirical piece about the Tampa episode and John Howard. And I wondered whether you ever faced backlash in relation to those things that you produce. No, look, one of the great things about the quarterly and actually also live audiences is that they've paid money to be there. They've paid money to be part of the audience or, you know, to be part of the readership. And so therefore, it's the actual core people who are buying it because they want erudite, interesting, subtle satire that's often a bit dark, a bit confronting, whatever, and is intelligent. Like, I think the one thing that is true in the Squidiverse and Facebook, you have to be aware that going too dark or anything like that can create this enormous backlash. I think there is a sort of process of self-censorship that you can actually release yourself from when you're doing live shows. And you do. And you sort of go, no, no, this is in the context of a 2,000-word piece of satire. Actually, we can get quite complex in this. Well, in Twitter, you have, I think, I don't use Twitter, but uh, 140 characters or something like that. And with the type of humour you're talking about, there's an incredible amount of nuance involved. And I think the problem with social media, to some extent, you lose the nuance and you lose the complexity. And and it's so easy to harness outrage because outrage transmits really well across those media. Like it is actually, it's one of the key tools to actually create something to go viral is to make an outrage. And if that involves attacking a satirist who's, made an off-colour joke, or indeed taking something out of context. I mean, that's the thing that we're aware of constantly is to go, well, because you're not just checking it for will this cause outrage within context. You also have to ask yourself nowadays, well, will this cause outrage out of context? And it's not all the time. There are sometimes calls where you go, actually, that will be so easy to be taken out of context that... We've got to rework that to sort of make it clearer or make it less open to interpretation. Can you make yourself immune to outrage? To me, it seems as though part of the business model for a lot of those platforms is essentially creating outrage. Yeah, the Daily Mail and all those sorts of things. Yeah, but the upside of that is that it's all now flash in the pan. You know, we've been through various controversies over the years and I can tell you now, you know, a decade ago they lasted a lot longer than they do now. Like even if you've done something egregious, you just know that somebody else is going to be on the front page the next day because, you know, that's 
the nature of this Twitter news cycle. 24-hour news cycle yeah. on social media. Which is not even 24 hours. It's about six-hour now news cycle. Like, things come and go so quickly. Because I think what's interesting about the chaser... And what I find refreshing about it is that you end up with people polarised. And there's, for me, there's nothing worse than, than talking to people about... I don't know very much about politics. It's not a great interest of mine. But talking to people who are rusted on. You know, yeah, rusted yeah, yeah. on voters. And that they, they've kind of, they're teamsters, essentially. So it's like you're talking about their football team. And so they're, they're incredibly emotionally invested. Uh, there's nothing that... There's no piece of single piece of information that would sort of even move them in one way or, or another. But what I like about the chaser, and maybe you could talk about it, is that it's, it, it feels as though it's essentially politically agnostic, if that's true. Well, I think that's right. Like, there's enough criticism to go around <laughs> to yeah. cover everyone. Like, and it, we always actually kept that in mind. Like, we, we considered ourselves sort of equal opportunity criticisers because I hate that, yeah, we're cheerleading from one side where they criticise one, criticise another. Like, you're just going, there's enough to say about every single political actor in Australia. Like, it's not like this exclusive club where mediocrity only gets spread around to one side of politics. Everyone in that entire building is resplendent with extraordinary amounts of mediocrity. So, and I think it's actually something that is missing a little bit from the current generation of satire. Like, it's really important that, you know, you spread your punches wide Mm. because there's an integrity to that, I think. I mean, I would get a general sense that there's a sort of a socialist sympathy underneath uh, the politics of the the chaser crew. I reckon if there's if there's one guiding philosophy, it's that you should always punch up. And you know, we were doing a sketch today, and there were some mildly funny jokes about doll bludging, but it sort of wasn't actually relevant. Like it was sort of a bit tangential, and we sort of went, and also, hang on. You know, is that really a very funny idea? Because it's also a bit of a cliche and everything like that. And we sort of decided, oh, yeah, and we're not even really punching it. More often than not, you've got to be punching in the right direction. You're listening to Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Charles Firth. Yeah, so this is the follow-up interview to the last one we did. Going to look at an aftermath of the election. I'll refresh your memory. You're a little bit more pessimistic about Labor's chances. You pointed uh-huh. out that only three Labor governments uh, had been in power since World War Two: Whitlam, Hawke and Rudd, and they're all based upon having really popular leaders and a, a big, a big ticket item in terms of social change. And your contention was essentially that, well, this time round, they didn't have a popular leader. They had a, one of the most unpopular leaders they've ever had. And you didn't feel as though uh, what they were offering was revolutionary. Yeah, that's right. There was no social movement behind what they were offering. There's no clear narrative. In one sense, you're making a good prediction in terms of Labor's chances because uh, (laughs) news poll had consistently showed them in front since the last election with um, Malcolm Turnbull. But when I reflected upon it, maybe it was a little unfair. I mean, it was an election on climate change. It was an election on the removal of negative gearing, even though I'd be grandfathered for some people, and ranking credits, which have significant changes to the economy. But I suppose the thing that I'd say is, how are those three things in any way connected to each other? I mean, 
they sort of are. I know how they are in terms of a neoliberal framework, but that was never part of Bill Shorten's story. There was no grand narrative that allowed it to be one thing. It was a whole bunch of things, and either because the storyteller was not very good at telling stories, or they just didn't have a narrative to link those things together, they just didn't appear. They treated them as issues. They treated them as, oh, climate change is over here, franking credits is over here. They're not related to each other. Well, are they related to each other? Yes, absolutely. This is a, a sort of generational rip-off. Never before has human history seen such a selfish generation as the baby boomers who've come through, they've destroyed the planet, and now they're wanting all the, the tax money to go back to them. And that's the generational question of our time. That's how franking credits link to climate change in my mind, which is it's all part of the same framework, which is that the only thing that matters is to sort of grow people's bank accounts that our entire lives should be run as slaves to the machine. So economics above all else, essentially. Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess I thought that that issue of climate change was perhaps a bigger issue in terms of maybe, I mean, what did Rudd was campaigning against work choices. Uh, For Bob Hawke, it was with Bob Brown, the damming of the Franklin River which are sort of almost, like the Dam of the Franklin River is a, a localised issue. I mean, they lost every seat in Tasmania and then won it back again in the next election. Yes. So imagine, imagine if Labor had had that strategy nationally this time around. Imagine if they said, well, central Queenslanders want to destroy the planet. Yes. We're not going to let them. Right. Let's abandon Queensland as a place to try and win seats. Instead, we'll pick up seats from everywhere else in the country because we'll have a clear moral vision that we don't want the planet to burn. There's going to have to be some hard transition in Queensland. The mathematics was they picked up six seats in Victoria. It wouldn't have mattered. And they didn't pick up any seats in Queensland anyway. That's right. the hilarious thing. They right. tried to save Queensland and, and they were so hesitant and tricky. They were trying to be too smart by half. Right. They were trying to um, pretend like they weren't going to shaft Queensland and then and Queenslanders aren't idiots. What actually happened in this election is that the Labor Party allowed themselves to be wedged in exactly the same way that they have allowed themselves to be wedged on refugees for the last twenty years. The one issue that had destroyed successive Prime Ministers of the coalition was the issue of climate change. Right. It was, you know, the National Energy Guarantee this and that thing. It destroyed Tony Abbott and then it was a, an issue that was effectively wedging the Liberals. Right. And if the Labor Party had had a clear vision, which was, we're going to stop Adani, we actually believe climate change is really important, as do 85% of the Australian population. Yes. This is a climate change election. Then it would have split the Libs and the Labor Party would have got across the line. But it wasn't only Queensland, was it? I mean, they, they didn't perform as well in Western Australia. And at some point, those losses seemed to be too accumulative. The whole map would have changed. The Labor Party would have picked up several seats in Sydney. And also, politics is a dynamic thing. Had Bill Shorten shown himself to be a courageous leader who actually could create a central narrative and forced Scott Morrison to fight on one thing 
rather than allow Scott Morrison to attack him on 14 different issues. You know, negative gearing here, yes. franking credits there, bit of climate change there. The whole point is that it's not about the size of your face, it's about whether you have a clear centre that you can hold. Like, it's just basic warfare, which right. is you can actually have a broad front as long as you hold the middle. You do that by having a really clear central narrative. Sure. I guess I was wondering whether the, you know, something like the Franklin River is more of a localised concern which doesn't really affect the rest of the nation, whereas but, but climate... But a symbolic issue that the rest of the nation could get on board with. And I guarantee you Adani would have been the same thing, which is a local issue that was symbolic of Labor's ability... Yes. to actually cut through on environment and make some tough decisions that yeah. actually need to be seen. With most of the rest of the country not really affected by it. It's the perfect issue for the Labour Party. Right. Well, i am interested in your thoughts on this because um, I read something recently about the evolution of those um, policies around negative gearing and franking credits. And they were saying that essentially those policies were pulled out of the Labor Party draw when Malcolm Turnbull won the leadership from Tony Abbott. And they started to reassess and they looked at Bill Shorten versus Malcolm Turnbull, the Sun King, as Bill Shorten once called him. Um, and they realised that they couldn't compete in terms of popularity of leaders um, because right. Malcolm Turnbull's uh, popularity at that point was historically high, similar to something like Kevin Rudd uh, when he uh, came into power. And so they brought out these policies. They went, we're going to be heavy on policies so that we're proffering something, something with substance. But then they can't put them back in once they're out, can they? And I wondered whether that was part of it. Once they'd committed to it, they'd made themselves targets and essentially had nowhere else to go. But I think actually the truth is five minutes is a long time in politics. They could easily have just said, I actually, we've decided, you're right, they're terrible policies. And the inner circle of Canberra observers and the Australian would have had a field day. And then the Liberal Party would have gone, damn. You're sort of right. Like, they sort of stuck to themselves in that they announced what was essentially their version of the GST. Some really great ideas, which you really probably politically should only announce from government when you've got the advantages you know, like when John Howard went to the election with the GST, he had the advantage of doing it from government and he ran a $28 million advertising campaign in the lead-up to it. Oh. Remember those a new tax system ads yeah. on every five seconds? So, there, yeah, there were some terrible tactical blunders. I mean, my understanding of those franking credits and the negative gearing things was Bill shouldn't had to do that to hold on to the leadership. My understanding is that essentially that the Labor Party was actually split at that point. They thought, we've got an unpopular leader, we need to ditch him. And he did that to shore up the support of the left by sort of going, hey, I'll just implement whatever policy you want. And that was the sort of disaster. And then, and then Chris Bowen thinks he's the smartest guy in the world. That is a disaster for politicians <laughs> because like John Houston, smart people then think that they're so smart that they can convince people of anything if it's the correct policy when that's tinny when it comes to policy. You're listening to Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Charles Firth. 
it's interesting because your point is around that they weren't perhaps ideological enough on climate change and decisive, whereas now in terms of their backtracking, uh, you know, with Anthony Albanese as leader, they're, they're saying, well, you know, we were too strident. And so we need to have a balance in terms of climate change policy. We're only responsible for 1% of global emissions, um, even though we produce the highest amount per capita. So it feels like they've retreated from what your suggestion would be to be more ideological. Mm. Well, I don't think it's ideological to follow science. but (laughs) No, I, I mean, I think what Anthony Albanese is doing is just being very shrewd. He's just being a politician, right? Which is, he doesn't need to fight any battles for three years. So why pick any fight? It would look arrogant for him to double down on anything at the moment. What he should be doing is have a tactical retreat. And don't underestimate Anthony Albanese's capacity for gross hypocrisy and just barefaced lying in the face of political expediency. But that is what he is. And I hope, I don't know, but I hope he's almost as good as John Howard at the ability to say one thing and mean another and for both constituencies to sort of hear what they want to hear out of something. Because that's what he's done to the left for the last 30 years in the Labor Party. He's, he's said one thing, he said a whole lot of monthly statements, the left has sort of gone, oh yeah, he's, he's great, he's one of us. And I don't think there's a single thing that he's done that is part of the left platform. Like, that's not him. And you're right, like, you should actually say what you mean. But as a politician, actually, I don't think that's true at all. I think you do a tactical retreat, yes. and then you come out with a way to say, no, we care about climate change, that makes everyone have to sort of, you reframe the debate. And I don't think you can do that from where he is at the moment, because if you just went, I don't know, we we were right going into the election, and everyone's going to go, hang on, you just haven't learned. But the thing that I was interested about and what came out of this election was, and watching the parties and, and reading about it, that each party will have learnt something from this election result. And I was wondering what you thought the two major parties had learnt, like the Liberal Party and Labor Party. What had they each learnt about this election taking it forward into other elections? Well, I reckon the Liberal Party think that they've learnt an almost sort of trump card trick in the Clive Palmer preference deal. I think that they think that that will serve them well for the next three or four elections and that they're up for a golden period of of statehood because I think very similar to what happened in I think it was 1990 when the green issues it was the first environment election and the Labor Party harvested all these different sort of environmental groups that were running all their preference flows and made lots of motherhood statements about how much they cared about the environment when they first pivoted environmental stands it was under Graham Richardson who's the environment minister and the Labor Party thereafter thought that they would win every election for a generation. I remember because they had this trick with preferences. And I think the Liberal Party, you've got to remember, Scott Morrison comes from that backroom Liberal Party head office. That's who he was. He was the secretary of New South Wales Liberal Party. And so I think he sort of thinks he snuck in with those sorts of tricks. And if they're smart, the other thing that the Liberal Party will have taken away is that They've now found their golden wedge issue. It's no longer refugees. 
they can actually win an election just by wedging the Labor Party on climate change. And I think that they're probably correct. Until Labor Party actually goes, no, nah, we're going to stand up to Adani and we're just going to start Queensland, it'll be election after election that the Liberal Party will win on jobs yeah. over the environment because, and the Labor Party will have just self-wedged by being hesitant on it without committing one way or another. And that's what they did on refugees. Like, if in 2001 you said to the Labor Party, you know that you're going to be fighting elections in 15 years' time on Stop the Votes, they might have chosen a bit differently. They might have actually gone, you know, well, we need to be nice to refugees because this is going to just be a constant wedge. Anyway, Labor Party, I don't think they know. I don't think they've learned anything. I don't think they even know what they've learned. Well, my impression is that one of the things that you can learn from the Liberal Party's perspective is that you can replace a leader not far out of election and still have a good chance of winning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your appraisal when we last spoke of Scott Morrison, I think you compared him to um, John Howard. You saw something wily about him. And the narrative at the moment is that they've won this election based upon one man, a messiah, with a presidential campaign. Yes, I think that's very true. I hope that that's the lesson that they think that they've taken. Although, I'll tell you what, the Liberal Party thrives when they have a strong leader. Like, Howard was that, and they loved being whipped by him. They loved Mm. the sort of love-hate relationship that he gave to everyone and the way he picked ministers against each other. They loved it. So the Liberal Party does thrive when they have that sort of strong leader mentality. For the Labor Party, um, the, it seems to be the learning would be never run with an unpopular leader and be as small target as possible in the future, never come out with anything. I think that's the lesson that Panditarati are ascribing to the Labor Party. I would be very surprised if Anthony Albanese thinks that. I think you're right. I think, I think Alba actually knows that if he's not going well a year out from the election... He should. He will. He'll just resign and give it to somebody who is more likely to win. He's a team player in that sense. He's not going to enforce the rules. I think the rules are stupid, the Rudd rule. I guarantee you that that would have been the deal that got tenure out of the race. I reckon there is a reason why the waters parted and nobody else wanted to run for the leadership, was that Alba rang around and made a million guarantees that give him two years and if everything's going as well as he hopes it will, yes. it'll be fine. Otherwise, Tanya can have the leadership, so-and-so can have that, you can have this, and I'll get out of there. So this is his last throw of the dice. But in terms of the small target thing, I think you can call it that. I think Anthony understands politics well enough that what that actually means, I mean, it's such a moronic, idea small target right what it actually means is only fight a battle on one front that's actually what it means being a small target is sort of saying don't have a role in the election just be let it be a referendum on the government right and the problem with that is that it leaves you open to the government pulling a trick on you and you're not having any state in just a whitewash, right? Yes. What you have to have is you have to have one thing and only one thing, like a narrative. And that's what a narrative does. 
it binds everything together and and allows you to frame what the election should be about. And that's what they'll try and do next time. And I, I, I know that Anthony Albanese is smart enough to understand that there's a difference between small targets in the sort of moronic media sense of the yes. word and strategically having a strategy. That, that's what yeah. it is. It's about having a strategy to win. Because the mistake that Shorten made is that he didn't have the confidence of a strategy to go, well, let's get rid of Queensland, we can pick up the seats in Victoria and possibly in Tasmania, and we'll more than hold in New South Wales, and that'll be enough to launch the flow in Queensland. And that's what a, a Keating, like a Keating would have done that. Remember yeah. Keating, one of Keating's boldest strategies is to say, if you vote for John Hewson, we will pass everything that he wants in the Senate with no amendments. And that was a really bold strategy. And having a bold strategy is making a decision to sort of not win some things. You're sort of saying, if we lose, we lose big time. It's a big roll of the dice, but it concentrates the minds of the voters on what the central narrative is, which to that election was, oh, look how scary the GFC is. The other thing that every Labor Party leader has to do as they ascend to power and to be able to govern properly they have to reform the party. And the ALP desperately needs to be reformed. It's so antiquated because you've got to shape the party to actually convincingly serve your interests and your power going forward. And that's exactly the sort of operator that Anthony Albanese is. He can actually, and I think he will, I think he'll go in there, he'll change the party around so he can convincingly say the party is united behind me. Because this is his passion. Like, he just, he spends all day, every day, on the phone yelling at people who don't do what he wants. So what I'd say is, first of all, I don't mean the parliamentary party. No, I mean the broader party. I mean the fact that there's virtually no one left in the Labor Party. Like, you know, they claim membership, I think, of 30,000 people nationally. I would be very surprised if that's true. Most of them would be over 95 years old. And, you know, think Curtin was a great guy when he used to drink with them at the pub or whatever. So he needs way more people in the party. The, the Labor Party has to face the fact that unions represent at most, what, 15% of Australian population, and they are 50% of the ALP. And unions set up the party and everything like that. But they, you know, deserve a key role in the party. But the way the unions actually wield power within the party is sort of not representative of how industrial (laughs) systems are organised. And so that's a hard thing to do. But if you can convincingly push back on those things and revive the party, actually get a much more vibrant, sort of broader party, then you can far more confidently go, okay, well, we're going to take on Adani or something big like that, or whatever the issue in three years is, because, you know, you've got people on the ground who are actually going to do it for you. You're listening to Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Charles Firth. Well, I suppose it gets back to this point about the effectiveness of Scott Morrison's presidential campaign. I remember when Donald Trump won the election. A guy I know at Monash University in political science tweeted, rip quantitative polling. And there's a professor at Griffith University, Ballastantic, who had predicted Trump, Brexit and Morrison's win. 
by analysing responses on social media. And I think what they've found is that essentially news polls are out of date. They, they, they rely on small sample sizes. They use the white pages, uh, robocalls, so they've got a high attrition rate. And so they're massively inaccurate. And so I wonder whether... It's not that the Labor Party kind of lost it at the end or Scott Morrison did anything uh, miraculous like they're claiming, but in fact, maybe they just were never in front. I think that's right. And the huge tragedy was that uh, the ALP outsourced their polling. I used to work with the woman who designed the ALP's internal polling many years ago. She's brilliant, Liz Kirby. And the whole way it used to work was you'd spend two years mapping the electorates that you wanted to pay attention to by looking at their demographic profile and creating this grid system where you sort of had A through G, you know, 1 through 5 or something, and electorates would be placed on this grid. So you go, you know, 3% uh, 1A voters, 4% are 2 voters, and blah, blah, blah. And the grid was socioeconomic factors and demographic factors. So it was cross-referencing. So it was allowing you to see really quite good detail what was happening. And then, so you'd go, oh, well, women under the age of 35 who are professional and university educated are actually starting to shift away from labour or something like that. And you'd go, okay, well, we know that that makes up 9% of the seats in this Queensland electorate so that's a real problem. But it only makes up 3% of the people in this seat in Wollongong. And it allowed you to get a far more accurate assessment of seats that you wanted to get than, than any pollster, outside pollster would give you. Then, after the last election, they went, well, that save a whole heap of money. Let's not do that. We'll just give it to Galaxy. Yes. YouGov. UK, Greek. Right. And the whole problem is that all the polling organisations use the same modelling because they all buy it from a single company. Nate Silver wrote a piece about this the other day. The reason why all the polls got it exactly the same wrongness was because essentially there was only one poll. They're all bringing up different people, but the modelling behind that polling was all done by the same person. And then the kicker, and this is the conspiracy theory going around the Labor Party at the moment, but I don't know how true it is. The conspiracy theory is that the person who owns that polling company that supplies all the data is Gina Reinhart. (laughs) Right. Well, that's interesting. That's that's a conspiracy theory for you. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, Bob Brand's uh, Annie Adani convoy. I know I talked about earlier that a lot of... um, uh, the Labor true believers are saying that this, you know, what's viewed as the extreme left in terms of the Greens' approach, had uh, cost Labor Queensland. And mm. I know that you'd, from what you'd said, you disagreed with that. To a certain extent, I think that's totally true, which is, yes. remember what Bob Brown was famous for. What he was, was he was a Tasmanian local who, out of Tasmania and out of the, the whole politics there, charismatically represented a, a side of Tasmania that wanted to save the Penguin River from being banned. And then Hawke took that up and sort of ran with it and made it into a national issue, right? And then Rob Brown, 30 years later, used exactly the same tactic, which you never do in politics, except instead of finding a Queenslander to sort of represent that side of Queensland, to be one of us, 
he goes up there and just tells everyone what he reckons they should do. Like, it's the opposite of any sort of good politics. And it's the opposite of what he had done 30, 40 years ago. It was just so tone deaf. It sort of makes you think that the critique of him was correct, which is, yeah, he just pissed everyone off. I think that's exactly what happened. And I think... One of the unfortunate things about the Greens is because their whole idea is that they're right about everything all the time, I don't think they're going to learn a huge amount from this thing. Like, I think that it's going to be very hard for them to admit that going around telling people that they're right and you're wrong and not really having much more to say than that is actually not great politics and doesn't represent the environment movement very well. I suppose Bob Brown uh, and members of the Greens are, are essentially like Peter Dutton. So Barry Cassidy called him. One thing you could tell about him is a conviction politician. So he wasn't going to compromise yeah. or move like it or loathe it. You knew where he stood. Yeah, yeah. Well, no politician has ever in the history of the universe won by saying mm. you're right and I'm wrong. If Bob Brown had gone up there and said, look, I personally think there's a real problem with this mind. I want to listen to you and through a listening process, even just framing as a listening process, brought the issue to national attention. That would have been, that would have been amazing. You're listening to Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Charles Firth. I think there's a really clear narrative that can be built around climate change, which is that some people correctly think that climate change is not going to affect them because they'll be able to buy their way out of it. At least for the next 100 years, you'll just be able to buy more air conditioning, be able to buy, you know, houses slightly further up the hill. Um, And in summary, actually, probably as a nation, as a rich nation, we're not going to, like, the next 100 years of sea level rising, it'll take out Glenelg in, in Adelaide. It'll take out certain parts of Sydney, like very low level, you know, like around Glebe, actually. There's a few places where there's residential that will be affected. Um, but other than that, we're talking, you know, the number of the houses really genuinely affected in the next 100 years of sea level rising it's probably, you know, a couple of hundred or something like that. It's not right. a huge amount in Australia. Because in the Netherlands, they're already below sea level. And they're a rich country that just goes, oh, well, we'll just build some bigger dikes. Right. And we'll just abate our, you know, sort of sea level rises through dikes and irrigation systems. Now, you know, Vanuatu, Bangladesh, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people who just will not be able to afford that option. And they will either drown or get completely displaced and cause extraordinary wars. But that's not us, right? Like, there is a certain extent to say Scott Morrison has it absolutely, and Tony Abbott and all of them have it absolutely correct. Not that it's not happening, but that actually it's sort of irrelevant to Australians because the unspoken thing is because the world is really unfair and we can just buy our way out of it. Now, the truth is that actually in Australia there will be winners and losers and it's actually people who are richer that will, you know, they, yeah, they'll be able to afford soaring electricity prices or whatever. But what we have to actually do is frame the whole idea around, like, we can't be arseholes. 
But there has to be a sort of hopeful moral leadership framework that gets developed in order to actually address the climate change arguments in Australia. Perhaps to some extent, elements of denialism are driven by fear. Yeah, I think that's probably right. The polls are consistent. 85% of Australians know that climate change is real and that it's a problem and that they'd like our politicians to do more about it. But making it an issue over electricity prices will always result in the Libs winning. Like, what a conservative frame. I suppose in one sense you're you're dealing with something that is... Uh, pragmatic and tangible and and has a direct effect on people's lives and then the other one is more conceptual the thing that interests me in terms of in terms of people's thinking so uh, because i've studied science and worked as a scientist people have said to me at parties what do you think of climate change you know the science is it is it correct and i say to them what are you asking me for Go and mm. talk to someone who's done a PhD in climate yeah. science. I mean, that's yeah. the, what, what I try to encourage with people is a sort of a personal, topical agnosticism where they, they say, well, I don't know. And if I really did want to know, then I would actually have the conviction to, uh, to invest in that and find out. But otherwise, I'm just going to, to essentially take the weight of evidence from people who've taken the time to develop expertise. It's not uncoincidental that all that sort of politics has arisen alongside social media because what that represents is a whole set of unmediated opinions that simply had no ability to escape from people's brains into the wider world. Yes. And yet, and there's plus and minuses of that. Right. And you go, oh, yeah, there's always been people like this, but usually the audience, you know, as happens with talkers, the talker has an audience of one. But if these people actually just updated their mode of techniques and put their thoughts on Twitter, they get, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. There was a quality control mechanism, I think, you know, that if you were going to reach a large number of people, you had to go through a process where there were people positioned to stop you. We're just living through a period where the mediators uh, take a different form to the sort of tabloid giants of the previous era. And I think that very rapidly we'll see more mediation in that space. That said, I don't trust Facebook at all to go down quietly. Like, it'll take another 30 years for that to play out and, you know, probably a world war <laughs> in the meantime. But I think the fracturing of social networks is going to be the next trend, like, I think in 2025, we'll sort of look back and go, oh, wasn't it amazing when Facebook just sort of made all those elections go weird in the mid-2010s? Well, I mean, it's, uh, in terms of its effect on uh, democracy, Clive Palmer's United Australia Party didn't win a seat, but he essentially just came out and said that wasn't even the point. You know, $60 million yeah. was better than a political donation. But to some extent, people have talked about that and they've said, oh, well, is this the end of democracy in relation to social media? But I feel as though those special interest groups have always been there, lobbying government or inside government. I mean, the NRA in America, the gambling industry in Australia, uh, the incredible power that they have in terms of legislation. And if anyone tries to legislate against them, I mean, Gillard did because she had to strike a, a deal with Andrew Wilkie 
the independent when she when they had a hung parliament and the gambling industry essentially went after her yeah, yeah. and they're incredibly effective because they're trained by the NRA I mean I think that that was a new level of brazen corporate campaigning against the government I think it was unprecedented but you're right it's, it's not new to politics been the case for thousands of years that's how politics run the powerful hold more sway than the unpowerful unsurprisingly yeah well that's ex- yes <laughs> yeah. and what democracy is supposed to do is to dissipate that power but it's not doing an effective job as it was perhaps, you know 40 or 50 years ago no i suppose the uh effective social media is unpredictable it's not well modeled yet like i think i don't think anyone really understands what's going on and those who do and i've got friends who are media buyers they they understand and it's terrifying yes they're the ones who are terrifying the reason why one of the co-founders of facebook has come out against facebook saying it's got to be broken up it's a disaster well it's a corporate power comparable to when corporations ran countries Essentially, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. It's it has an unprecedented level of um, political yeah. power and it's a, it's and inf- a supranational um, power. Yeah, yeah, it's got more power than most countries. Okay. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about was we were talking about humour and how humour works, and we we're talking about the idea of punching up and punching down. I mean, uh, it changes over time, though, hasn't it? We talked about that last time. I mean, uh, The Chaser had a skit, which was the the Make-A-Wish skit, which which created a tremendous amount of public outcry, outrage, reaction, as far as I can remember, which was was around Make-A-Realistic Wish. Yeah, Um, that's right. That was from a comment by a doctor who we knew who was sick of the Make-A-Wish Foundation coming in and taking up all the donation money when right. he reckoned that the donation money should actually go to cancer research rather right. than cancer victims. It was probably poorly done, it was poorly cast. And also, I think if you look at a lot of the comments, most of the outrage seems to have been that they thought that the kids depicted in that sketch were actually real cancer kids, that we snuck into a real cancer ward <laughs> and were making fun of them. In which case, that would be appalling. But it was none of those things. And the actual target, though probably poorly expressed, was actually a completely legitimate social comment. Where should we be putting our charity dollars? Should it be into cancer research or, you know? That's that's the nuance underneath it, isn't it? Which, which, the issue with uh, coming back to social media and a sort of an outrage culture is that it's the utter removal of nuance. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, thank you, Charles. Yeah, no worries. Okay, thanks very much for joining us. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors, Ararat Gallery Tama, the Bendigo Living Art Space, and Wangaratta Art Gallery. Thanks for your support. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine.